Hello, I'm Tom McFarland here with Philip Sipe once again this week, and we're continuing our series on parenting uh, and policing and kind of drawing the uh, parallels and connections there. And this week we're going to kind of discuss some, uh, I, I guess I would say some kind of positive alternatives to authoritarian parenting um, and how that also applies and parallels to policing. Is that a good way of? Yeah, I think to, to, to sort of like clue people into sort of where our thought process was like last time we talked about how, um, you know, like policing culture and like police stuff in general and how that sort of like cascades into people's ideas about parenting. And so we kind of like went from, talking about the police to talking about parenting. And so now we're going to kind of, we kind of were like, oh, well, what what would happen if we did the opposite? Like, let's start with parenting and talk about like good ways to parent. And what does that say then about like how we might do police or law enforcement or whatever in a way uh, that is not uh, bad? (laughs) Yes. And a couple of things. Uh, a couple of things I want to clarify, I suppose, sort of. Uh, first of all, as I am aggressively anti-police, I am very, uh, police has to be, the policing system in America has to be abolished because of what it has, what it is, what it, not even what it has become, what it began in the beginning and what it is today. That being said, this, I think, is also, there's a difficult element of this because there are certain, because, like, there are certain roles that society needs in order to function well, that parenting needs in order to function well, that somebody needs to fulfill. And this is the thing that people get scared about when you say, well, let's abolish the police. Then they say, well, then who's going to investigate crimes? Yeah. And it's not saying so, do without law enforcement. Yes. And so here's where I would say, or specifically who would investigate murder? Like, you know, let's, let's pick a crime that we all know Okay, if somebody is threatening to kill me, A, I want somebody who can do something about that, and if somebody does kill me, I want somebody who will do something about that, so that people don't just walk around our society killing each other, because that's a thing that can happen. And I think one of my first, like, the first thing I want to specify here is that police don't do that. Like, police don't fulfill either of those roles. Um, so looking at a number of, looking at data right now, uh, with 2020 data, um, police across the United States have approximately a 50% homicide clearance rate. This means that if some, in all, um, discovered homicides, now I want to get to that in a moment, what I mean by discovered homicides, um, you know, homicide cases that are known, uh, 50% of those, they find the person who committed it. I would argue that's probably a lot lower than most people expect. Um, That's a complete coin flip as to whether or not they're going to figure out who killed you. And that is contingent upon a number of data issues. One of those data issues is that I'm talking about homicides that people know about. Um, Being from a rural area, one of the things that we just generally know real well in rural areas is that... um, Missing, they only know you were killed if they find your body. And a number of missing persons are homicides. Um, 
that's just that's a fundamental way that that just kind of works um and so therefore that number is considerably higher because um, you know there's a number of things it, it's not <laughs> this isn't that kind of podcast but there's a number of ways to get rid of a body uh hogs <laughs> will eat every part of a body and so i th that's something i want to fundamentally state here police don't do this very well I would also argue that when we look at authoritative parenting, authoritative parenting doesn't accomplish its primary goal of its goals of creating a child who is extremely strong and able to like, you know, the, the general goals of the strict father model. It usually doesn't achieve those very well. But before I get too lost in the weeds here, I want to continue with this policing element here that I'm trying to talk about where we... Um, what, there, there's an article that I found a bunch of really useful data to me in discussing one of the problems that we have in policing and how this comes from the conservative line of thought of this parenting that I think is just a last little tailing edge I need to put on from the last episode so that we can lead into this. And essentially is broken windows uh, policing theory, which is something that has completely overtaken American policing. Uh, this is kind of the general way that all cities and rural areas operate their policing. This is a theory that visible signs of crime or really any type of crime has to be stomped out in order to deal with serious crimes. So this is why patrol policing is this massive importance in America is because we see uh, we, we have this kind of philosophy that you have to deal with every single element of crime in this patrol you have to make sure that there no criminal element exists in your city in order to deal with anything else and this comes uh from social scientists james q wilson and george l kelling in the 1980s it's a very recent idea that has been very heavily demonked but it's so endemic into our society that when I get into this other study, this is a very recent study, uh, title of the study is, I, I love these long, ridiculous study titles, quote, from small towns to large cities, a comparative study looking at the factors affecting homicide clearance rates in two types of Colorado geographical areas, end quote, <laughs> by Jillian B. Ganley. That's now, how you know it's a real scientific study because the title is completely incomprehensible <laughs> without reading it at least three or four times. <laughs> right. So this study shows that the clearance rates uh, of homicide, that the clearance rate of homicide rates increase as much as 90% if three or more specialized detectives investigate a scene. So this means any instance where there's a homicide and three specialized detectives, like homicide detectives, the people you see in movies who show up and investigate homicides, if they show up, it has a 90% higher rate of actually being cleared. But what happens is, first of all, in a lot of uh, low-income areas, the police don't have resources for that, supposedly, and they just don't, it's not a prioritized thing. It's just not something, like, you know, in rural areas, we never had detectives or anything of this nature. And something I'll fault this article with is that it goes on to kind of look at that and say, oh, well, all of these police departments lack resources, and therefore their patrol police officers are splitting their duties between patrol and investigations. They're not trained in investigations, and so we're doing a worse job at doing this. Never looks at 
wow, why do we why do we not have any of these people who do these jobs? And instead, we just have a bunch of patrol police officers. Never looks at that. It just looks at, well, there's not enough resources. Now, and then the other, like, and then this falls into my, my rural experiences where, um, yeah, our police didn't do that kind of a thing. Like they specifically, like a quote that was made to me once by our police chief after um, there was an armed robbery in our local uh, gas station. And they like, it was asked of like, well, are you going to like take fingerprints or anything? And he said, oh, that's just something you see in movies. We don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it's the fundamental element of policing doesn't do the thing. So it, my whole point in saying all of this was to say that when we say like when I say I'm a police abolitionist and people get really uncomfortable of like, oh, so you don't think, but we need somebody to do these things. Well, yes. And this is a very real thing that in a lot of communities, we have real, real issues with crimes of domestic violence, uh, uh, homicide, uh, sexual violence. All of these things are problems. And we act, we do absolutely need a team of people who deal with those things. But that's not what policing is in America. Police don't do that. So when we say, hey, we need to get rid of policing, that's what we mean. We think, we, yeah, no, what our policing system is saying it's doing that, it's not doing that. We need and somebody who does that. And to be clear, and like, obviously, like, we don't have time to get into the massive history thing here. Like, if you look into the history of police, it never was that. And it, it and it, it, it's like, that's a, that's an invention that has happened uh, in the modern era to justify the existence of police, but the actual reason for their existence, uh, at least as they exist in the modern era, is uh, is something entirely different than solving crimes and protecting the downtrodden from being, you know, taken advantage of. One hundred percent. Like so, before I go any further, I would recommend that people go listen to behind the police it's an incredible multi-part podcast that dives exactly into that it goes into the history of policing in america it does a great job so uh um and i also wanted to clarify one thing just because i want to make sure that um a terminology thing is cleared up here because um in parenting styles especially among things like there is a a pretty significant distinction between authoritative and authoritarian uh, parenting that I want to make sure that, uh, we, uh, don't accidentally like use those terms interchangeably because it's like the authoritative is actually like pretty good and authoritarian is actually, is, is really bad. And, and when we were talking about like what we were talking about last time was largely like authoritarian style parenting. Yes. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so Something that people will ask me sometimes when I talk about police abolition is like, so what is your plan for replacing the police without replacing the police? And I'll say I don't have one because I don't because I don't think we're in any political reality where we're going to abolish the police right now. Um, worry about the problem that's in front of me. Um, and so one of those problems that's in front of me is parenting. And this is one of the reasons why I was really excited about doing this series, because I think this is one of the kind of like, OK, well, before you fix X, you've got to fix, uh, what letter comes before X? U? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, w. W. Yeah. <laughs> Don't trust me on anything now. I didn't know my alphabet in reverse. Um, but it, yeah, so before we solve one thing, we need to solve the first thing. And that's, you know, my whole element here of trying to connect um, our the methodologies we do in parenting to the belief state, um, I think kind of falls in line with that. So all that to say, the thing I'm focusing on is parenting and getting policing out of parenting um, and how we can do a better job. So how do we replace that in parenting? How do we take out that authoritarian um, broken windows style of parenting, which uh, you know, I, I think the entire broken windows philosophy falls into that authoritarian parenting so cleanly. Um, the, you know, I, I, so many of us have experienced, if not personally, which I haven't, my parents were authoritative parents, not authoritarian, but I witnessed all of my friends and very close, uh, people who meant a lot to me go through kind of a lot of that authoritarian parenting where it was this, uh, the, the nitpicking every little thing. If you don't dress the right way, it's introducing that criminal element into our neighborhood, and then that means that you're going to end up doing meth in the back of a Waffle House um, right after <laughs> you shoot up a church and rob an old lady with a boomstick. Like, you know, series of horrifying events because you didn't tuck your polo into your slacks. And so how do we... Okay, so we pull that bullshit away. We recognize that's obviously toxic. It's bad. It's not a thing that's working. All the things we talked about last episode. So what do we replace it with? And I think that's kind of what we're trying to dive into in this episode. Yeah. So, I mean, there is, um, like, I know last time I kind of, um, you know, talked about, like, um, how you know, making, making, uh, having to make stuff up as we go <laughs> as a thing. And, you know, I think that's kind of analogous. I'll think a little bit to, um, you know, your sort of feeling of, um, you know, what are we going to replace the police with and saying, like, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm trying to solve the immediate problem in front of me. Uh, and I will say like parenting itself has, has been fortunate in that, like, um, um, children get born and have parents and graduate into adults and then become parents at a rate that is significantly faster than society's experiment with new <laughs> forms of law enforcement. So we have a lot more data on different parenting uh, things than we do about alternative law enforcement models. Um, and there are some, there is some good stuff here. I think a lot of times it is a um, my one my one criticism of a lot of the parenting advice and parenting circles has always been um, a sort of there's a sort of idealism uh, associated with it that that like often like ignores the underlying reality. It's like okay, so like uh, let's get into something like specific, right? Like uh, when talking about like authoritative parenting, they're always like, listen, validate, be clear, right? Uh, and, you know, that's an easy thing to say. And it is a much harder thing to execute on when you have someone who um, screams at you that they're hungry, 
<laughs> or, you know, and then you go in and then you say, what do you want to eat? A peanut butter sandwich. Okay, cool. So you make them peanut butter sandwich and they say, why are you giving this to me? I don't want this. And then you go, well, you said that that's, yeah, you were hungry. And this is what you want. I'm not hungry. Okay. And then like, so you throw away the peanut butter sandwich and then five minutes later, it's I'm hungry. <laughs> and this, this, that kind of loop can be even tighter. You know, it can just be like a, I'm just going to keep screaming because I'm not getting what I want. And like, like, you know, there's always this kind of end that it's like, okay, well, you know, if they, if they refuse to be, uh, refuse to, you know, acknowledge a thing, you just set that boundary and you hold it. And it's like, that's hand waves away to me, like 80% of the difficulty, the holding it and not, and, and containing your own emotional experience of being yelled at by a highly irrational person who is yelling sh in incredibly shrill things at you that you can't do anything about or won't do anything about because it's not reasonable and all this stuff is like to me 80 percent of the difficulty and i always wish in parenting circles that people would talk about the emotional reality of executing on authoritative parenting techniques because they're extremely difficult to do consistent and and, and they rely and so in so many cases on consistency consistently staying calm doing this thing and i agree that there are better like i want to make that clear because it can like i'm saying authoritative parenting doesn't work it's not what i'm saying what i am saying is like it's very difficult it's it's much more difficult than than a lot of the like advice that i see paints it as um, especially for those of us who were not raised in that environment and don't have like that model to fall back on and be like, okay, I remember how this went and how my parents reacted to this and kind of stuff. Like when what your parents did when you did this behavior was hit you or spank you, you know, that it makes it really difficult for you to pull a practical example from your own experience to go, how do I handle this now in this moment while I'm having this emotional reaction? Uh, and, you know, it, it's just really hard to do that without like a, an existing model in your head and with no one telling you, you know, what is okay to do. Um, is it okay to send a kid to their room and just like make them stay there until they stop screaming at you or whatever? Like, is that okay to do to a two-year-old, to a three-year-old, to a four-year-old? Like when to, to ever, like when is, what, what, what kind of practical on the ground things can you do to simultaneously address not only the immediate, you know, power struggle that's going on between this child and you, but also the emotional strain that is being inflicted here and to, to do that in a way that doesn't cause breakage. Because fundamentally, if you don't have something to relieve that tension, people are, you know, we, we put a lot on parents and parents are fallible, breakable human beings. There's only so much you can take of someone screaming at you over the most irrational, nonsensical bullshit before you can't take it anymore. And that that and that headspace is never a good place to be when you're parenting. Every time I've ever reached a headspace anywhere close to that when I've been parenting has been the time that I've made the worst decisions. 
One of the things that I think makes this very hard is that in a lot of ways in doing authoritative parenting, we're trying to thread a needle between authoritarian parenting and indulgent or permissive parenting. So something I want to do is I want to step back and I want to discuss what we're actually kind of talking about here. And that yeah. is, um, and I'm going to mispronounce this name because we didn't talk about this in my psychology undergraduate, and I don't actually know how to pronounce this name, but it's Baumrein's Parenting Typology. Uh, so Diana, Diana, I'm going to say Baumrein. I have no idea how to pronounce her last name. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just going to read right from Wikipedia here because it's, I think it's a really well-written description of this, and I've read through it in other ways that it's always too lengthy and too difficult. But she's a researcher who focused on the classification of parenting styles and what is known as Baumrein's parenting typology. So in her research, she found what was considered to be four basic elements that could help shape successful parenting. That's responsiveness versus unresponsiveness and demanding versus undemanding. So, for instance, authoritative parenting tends to be demanding and responsive. So, uh, and then like something like authoritarian parenting is unresponsive, but demanding. So you're demanding that a child do something, but when they give you any, any input, you're not responsive to that. But if you're authoritative, you might be very demanding, but you're also very responsive to their input. Meanwhile, uh, indulgent or permissive parenting tends to be responsive, but there's no demands being made. You're just kind of letting them go hog wild and do their own thing and then neglectful is where you're neither responsive nor demanding you just pretend your child doesn't exist and let them literally go hog wild and well, yeah. that's also what we call the rich style of parenting <laughs> uh which is actually funny that you say that because so a couple of criticisms of this typology um, one of them is the way that they class uh, that this typology kind of classifies neglectful parenting and very much kind of frames it up as the um, it, it, it kind of frames it as well when parents don't have any resources and their time is all taken up by work and uh, basically when they're poor people who work too much they're neglectful of their kids and they fall into this and you immediately picked up on something that I also as a person who grew up lower income than many, um, picked up on, and that is, no, rich people are way more likely to engage in this kind of parenting. Um, now, the other criticism of this is that authoritative parent, or authoritarian parenting and the way that it is framed up in this, um, it kind of specifically states that it's bad parenting, it doesn't work, it's broken, it's flawed in all of these ways. However, this falls into one of the big broad problems and criticisms of psychology is that that thesis plays out when you're only examining western societies but the minute you leave those and you run into non-western societies where you see more authoritarian parenting styles that exist and are argued to be successful um and societally in those societies seen as successful now i have some criticisms of that um, in, you know, I, I do think that there are, for, for instance, it kind of dives in like some criticisms I've seen of this have dove into, well, Japanese parents are very authoritarian, um, but see great success. They also see one of the world's highest rates of suicide and mental illness in teens. I wouldn't call that a success. Um, there's such thing as having academic success and not 
success as an individual. Yeah. Um, so that, to say that is, I think, the framework that we're looking at. And uh, no, I think you're very valid in that. And I, I agree. Like I, when I was studying through this and learning about this, and I actually was doing so because of our last episode and how much you were talking about uh, uh, how we, when we, yeah, I was, it was clicking in my head that I was like, I think there's a difference between authoritarian and authoritative parenting and what is it? And then I went into it and I was like, oh, this is a whole theory of child psychology. And then I just dove into it and was like, oh, I have a better understanding of this. And yeah, and we've had this talk before a lot about how the kind of authoritative parenting and all of these things that are super good to do, but also, yeah, it's like you can't do dive into that indulgent parenting and just let it have no demands, no barriers. I think that's very specific, like what you're pointing out there, not having any barriers. Like if your kid is demanding a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you make it for them. And then they're like, I didn't want this, make me something else. If you just keep making them something else over and over and over, it is a problem in that they don't learn barriers that they have to set with people because yes, no, you can upset somebody and frustrate them and they're not going to want to help you anymore. Um, and just a number of issues that come through that, even just basic discipline issues. Um, but there's also a fine line between that and also being a parent who is going to make things that obviously no kid would want for dinner and then demand that they eat it. And if not, they go to bed hungry. Like, there's got to be a gray area in there. And it's obviously going to be hard because one of those things is you're just going to keep making things for a kid over and over into infinity, which that does sound really hard to me, but I mean, it doesn't, uh, you don't have to build a barrier and that's easy for some people. And then the other one is you're just going to do what you want to do and fuck all, they can figure it out or leave. And that's really easy. The hard thing is to try to thread a path between those two. Yeah, for sure. And I think like it's a, it's a challenge specifically in that, uh, another, another, aspect of that is um threading and threading that needle and this is where the uh the you know the difficulty with parenting in particular is um it is both a thing that can be studied in a very like scientific way and you can get a lot of things and there have been a lot of good scientific discoveries in the realm of like what kind of things are good parenting what kind of things aren't um for example like we pretty robust scientific data that spanking is bad that it has negative net negative outcomes that it it trades uh pretty much like good mental health outcomes for um short-term compliance um and so um you know it so there's this sense that you have like oh okay well we have figured out like how to be a good parent like you kind of get a little bit of that but and and you even even like with authoritative parenting, you can read these like broad strategies. Be like, oh, see, yeah, this is kind of the model that you use to go about how you should do this thing. But the reality of threading that needle is not only emotionally difficult, as I already talked about, but I would say it's 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 mentally difficult in a very particular way, which is like with any threading a needle task. Uh, you know, another analogy for this is like balancing on a tightrope. Right? It is a delicate thing that you were trying to do and it is very easy to lose your balance to make a mistake and to fall off into most often i would imagine what you were raised 
like. Uh, and um, it's it's an ideal. It's an ideal that I would say that the vast majority of parents, if not all of them, fail to live up to. Um, and uh, the even when you don't completely fail, like when you don't break, when you don't fall off the wagon or whatever, uh, even when you're still maintaining your balance and making forward progress and doing your best or whatever, you're going to look back and you're going to see moments where you teetered pretty hard. And there's a lot of like guilt and a lot of um, concern. Like I think about times where I've, you know, uh, lost my temper or, um, you know, been dismissive or whatever. And I see, I remember these moments and I experience a lot of guilt. Um, and it's extremely difficult to do that thing. And you have to do it for like 18 years. <laughs> That's a really long project to thread a needle for. Um, and so like, I want to recognize the reality that it is not only difficult, not only is it one that in which you will completely fail uh, the ideal in a, in a very profound way, um, inevitably, in that period of time. But there will be countless moments in which, like, you don't balance very well and you teeter, and it's not like it's not like a solved problem. It's not like just a simple, oh, just do this and then this and then this, and you are a good parent. There's no and and there isn't. It's not possible to do because every single child is a full ass human being who is unique and has their own particular set of weird quirks and personality and attitudes and combination of things that will take what you have as a model and smash it with a hammer. <laughs> uh, and it's it, it's messy. It's an art form as much as it is a science. And so like, um, uh, there are models for it. And you know, you try to your best to to implement them, and you just kind of go in with the realization that it's not going to be perfect, and that's going to be okay. You know, we can absorb that. the The other half of it is that children are resilient, just like like I'm a person that you know survived a more authoritarian style of thing, and uh, my parents survived. Uh, particularly, my dad survived. Uh, uh, extremely authoritarian, almost explicitly authoritarian version of parenting, uh, you know, back multiple generations of, you know, and it gets better and you do better than the previous one and you improve. And, you know, you just, you, you survived and you try to do better and they'll survive too, and they'll be okay. And, you know, that is not an excuse to not try and not try to thread that needle as best you can. But it is, you do have to give yourself, I think, a little bit of grace in that, like you're going to mess up and uh, it's not going to fuck up your kids forever. You, they're they're going to be okay as long as you just really do love them and really do try your best to have them succeed and try your best to be the best parent that you can be. Um, that's all we really can do because it's not a solved problem. A hundred percent. And I mean, and one of the things that I think makes this 
uh, more difficult in our society and potentially easier in how we can reshape our society and how, and a way in which I think this directly applies to policing is the isolation of parenting in our society as it has been in the framework. And specifically when we talk about the strict father dia uh, diagram of parenting where the mother is in charge of nurturing and the father is in charge of discipline. In that case, all of this type of stuff all falls on the father. Um, that's not healthy. It's not healthy or functional to put all of this uh, role onto one person. Uh, it should at the absolute very least be like all roles, divided um, between the team that is raising this child, which is both parents, um, the idea of uh, isolating our roles by gender between the parents is very flawed in this, and that it's not taking, uh, it's just not looking at marriage as a team, uh, as, a, as a team and as a partnership. But also, specifically within our societal view of the nuclear family, makes this harder by not allowing us to divide these roles up between our community, to not have these kinds of parenting discussions between within members of our community, to not feel comfortable um, just in general divvying up the, the task of parenting and of uh, instilling safety values and all of this stuff doing all the things we're talking about that we need to do as, as parents. We don't super feel comfortable dividing that up between members of our community in the U.S. because we have, A, this huge focus on the nuclear family, just it, within your own walls, those are the only people you can trust, love, or depend on. And then within that, the father is the person who should be in charge of all of this, so all of this should land on you, uh, and everything else should land on your wife. Um, has its own obvious toxicities and further draws this down into a easy to fail problem because one person looking at any problem is not going to see all of the solutions to it um, and also just into a toxic for ourselves situation which yeah and you know to that note i i have probably mentioned it before but uh i'm currently in the middle of another situation like this where um there have been a handful of my times in my life where I've lived in a non-nuclear family sort of situation. Uh, and every single time it's been fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, uh, not, not that it's without its own difficulties. Living with more people means more relationships, more interactions, more, um, uh, you know, thing, you know, possible uh, moments of gives you a lot more moments of failure in a relationship sort of sense but you know if you're in a situation where you're in it together and everyone's you know being you know good faith and all that stuff that's manageable you know like you you learn to navigate new relationships and uh but the enhanced like benefit of having additional people in the house beyond just your family is like just easier it's it's easier because like more hands make lighter work like there's just like uh we have a friend currently staying with us uh who uh they have fallen on some difficult times and they are uh 
needing some help to get back on their feet. So we're letting them stay with us for a while while they, you know, sort of get a better job, get a better handle on their health and build up a little bit of financial independence before they can go and, you know, do whatever they're going to do to live their life. And having them here in the, in the house, like they um, play with the kids sometimes and the, you know, uh, they help make dinner or lunch or whatever sometimes. And, you know, we certainly don't have them do it all the time or, you know, they're not like a maid or anything. Like it's just another person who has their own life, but, you know, sometimes they're around and they contribute to the unit of this household. And it's great because some of those things that always fall on you and there's no one else to ever relieve the burden besides someone else who's also bearing that responsibility is just hard. Uh, and uh, having someone just being, having, you know, even, even just expanding it by a single person is already so much better. And I've had, we've had a situation before where an entire family has stayed, you know, with us for uh, a little bit of an extended period of time. And that was great. At least in my experience, it was. So real quick message from our sponsors, because my free trial is running up. We'll be right back after this. This podcast is brought to you by the concept of choosing your own family, because the original phrase was the blood of the pack is thicker than the water of the womb, and it was literally stolen and changed by Christian fascists. So choose your own family. Fuck them. <laughs> yeah. So I think, like, suffice it to say, you know, like, there's the the sort of state of it in my mind is, you know, uh, there's plenty of good data and scientific evidence on ways to do it and that that can be successful. Um, and there is, um, it's not solved. It's not a finished thing. And, um, you know, there's a degree to which if we're going to find the best ways to do it, that we're going to have to, uh, be creative and make up a little bit, a little bit as we go along. And if you thought I was talking about parenting and not policing, surprise, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm talking about both at the same time because it's true for both of them. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about here applies very much to uh, policing models as well. Uh, and actually, I would say similarly. Uh, a lot of good like uh, ways in which like you can do law enforcement uh, that aren't toxic and aren't bad and don't result in horrible racism uh, are uh, are somewhat analogous to authoritarian parenting. It might not surprise you that um, authoritative parenting, I think you mean, or authoritative parenting. <laughs> parenting. That's my bad. Uh, Heel turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Surprise. <laughs> We're fascists now. Um, no, the um, uh, a lot of the uh, lessons that you can learn from authoritative parenting apply at a societal level as well. When you talk about law enforcement, there isn't actually um, all that much difference between uh, dealing with uh, 
a criminal and dealing with a child that is violating some boundary. Um, in fact, even you might say, well, yeah, but a child's not all that dangerous. A criminal is dangerous. It's like criminal is dangerous to an individual, uh, but they're not really dangerous to a society. Like you're only, the only way in which like someone stealing stuff from Walmart is dangerous to the society is like, if everyone started doing it all the time for all transactions and like, uh, you know, if, if they were, I would argue that something else is happening inside the society that is more of a danger to the society. Right. Exactly. Exa there's, there's a sense of which like, uh, yeah, exactly. So the, the point being like, people often are like really like worked up over like crime, but like most of the time, like it definitely sucks to be the victim of a crime, especially depending on the crime. Like I don't want to minimize like people who have like experienced like assaults or, you know, violence directly. That's obviously extremely traumatizing and difficult. Um, at the same time, there is uh, a sense of which like a lot of time, the kind of crimes we're talking about, have to do with things that are actually only problems partially because of how we've arranged society to begin with. For example, if some, someone's like, oh, someone stole my car and that's like going to ruin me financially because it's like, you know, $15,000 that I have to replace now or whatever. Well, if we if like we lived in places that were like walkable and, and whatnot, like that would be the loss of a convenience not a disaster that I must replace now or else I won't be able to get to my job in the morning. Um, if, you know, people were like, people keep stealing from my small business and if I can't sell these things, I won't be able to make a living and I'll lose my house. Why is housing a commodity? You know, like there's larger things here to talk about. So like, you know, I think we also have to remember that like, reform of law enforcement and, and imagining alternative models to it can't be done in a vacuum. It has to be done among other changes. Um, no one, I think, reasonable is going to say, let's just get rid of the police and uh, replace them with tree hugger hippies and everything is going to be fine and there won't be any problems. Um, I think like it's a lot more serious of a discussion than that. And I think that that models for that can start interestingly at uh, looking at how authoritative parenting uh, what what that might say to us about how to go about law enforcement yeah I mean and so one of the things you know I want to bring up is that when we talk about policing too it isn't always just on the grand you know the, the scale of state policing you know policing also exists within organizations organizations have to in some way police themselves um even super 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 baby organizations even some of the things i'm trying to do here in springfield um, i have to start it with an element of policing within the organization in my and, and so and very specifically what i mean by that is um i want to make sure that i'm not bringing somebody's abuser into the fold i want to make sure that nobody within our group 
is abusing the group or you know essentially you know there's you know there's the element of you know are you a fed i guess uh, almost you could boil that down to and that's a form of policing if you're trying to make sure that nobody in your organization is a fed that's a form of policing that's not really my concern my specific concern is and and and, and i have to this is something where and this is where i say that like community policing or community uh, security is very important because this, these decisions and discussions should happen between more than one person. But because th- this is very colored by me having some trust issues with uh, cis straight men uh, because of issues in my past um, of being abused. Um, so I want to make sure nobody's abuser is in my organization because if I know there is a uh, you know, if I bring in somebody I know, like a former partner of theirs is coming in, I want to know, hey, like they didn't abuse you or like do anything like that. Is this somebody who is safe to be around us or who we should have around us? That as a generality, building a framework so that if somebody is is an abuser in the community, it becomes highlighted and then they are not a part of that organizing space, right? That is a form of policing in the broader general form. Sorry, I really stumbled around saying that because it's a hard, complicated fucking thing to deal with and to untangle. Um, that is a Not form to of mention the, the added complication of, you know, imagining paths of restorative justice as well of, you know, yeah. does, <laughs> like, like, is this person still a threat and should they continue to be removed from the group you know if if they are truly remorseful and have learned and have improved and what is that you know how does that impact their you know victims and like yeah it gets really complicated talks of like justice and justice philosophy is difficult yeah and that's one of the reasons why it has to happen in the community front and it's also one of the reasons why like yeah this is very important talking about okay what is ethical and a thing that we can do and how can we do it is important even if we're not actively trying to replace the Norman police department with a new system of security and community protection. Um, but also because eventually, hopefully we do hope to get to that point to being able to do that thing. So how do we do that? What do we look at? What do we do? And uh, yeah, I think you're very valid. And like looking at some of these same processes of parenting gives us some guide work to do a lot of that. Yeah. And so like, obviously, we could we could even do a, a whole episode on just um models of justice but Which, i think like sorry, and and we wouldn't still even scratch the surface yeah of, yeah which i was um, gonna say like let's do that next time but it, yeah um... i mean sure we and like we could and we like it could be interesting i'm not even saying we shouldn't do it i all i'm saying is like we could have uh we could do that as the theme for the podcast the rest of the year and even then you know it's not like it's a solved philosophy problem of like oh here's how real justice actually works and you just do it this way like it's complicated and and different and weird and like i think you uh, there's a lot of judgment calls involved as well like ones that you're never going to have anything except that like except that like feeling of like i felt like this was the right thing to do and people are gonna say well it wasn't because it had this effect and you're gonna say like well i recognize that but you know there was this is one of those moments where i had to make a choice between two things both of which sucked in my mind and 
you know, you can always focus on the part that sucked with the option that you went with and say, see, you did this. And you're like, well, yeah, no, that's true. But, um, you know, anyway, I say all that to say, you know, I think looking at authoritative parenting techniques and seeing things like um, listening, for example, is a big one. Like a, a authoritarian type of attitudes for parenting are often like, we're going to tell you, you need to do this and don't question me and just do whatever I tell you to do and sit down and shut up and don't talk. And that sounds like most cops I've met. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that is very highly contrasted with authoritative parenting, which often leads with listening understand why try to understand why your child is behaving this way and frankly even just that would get us a whole lot closer when it comes to police and like criminal justice because i mean i i explained this to my own child and he got it and he's like eight years old so like it, it, if you are desperate and you are hungry and you've worked very hard and you still aren't getting what you need to put food on the table and keep a roof over your head your options become commit a crime or die. And it may not surprise you that most people choose commit a crime when put, presented with that choice. And, you know, if, 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 if every law enforcement officer had to understand why people were doing a crime before they did it, or even after they did it, like they did it and they got arrested and now we have to understand why they did this before we decide how to discipline them or, or whatever, Imagine every cop, instead of having to go home thinking, I I captured 20 people that tried to steal. I mean, that would be an insane day, 20 people. <laughs> but like, you know, you know, I caught another two people that were that were criminals stealing, you know, valuable things from a, a, a local business. If instead they had to go home every day and be like, man, another two people who are so desperate that they were willing to steal food because they couldn't get enough support to feed their families. After, after like three months of that, that cop would be like, we got to figure out something to do about um, like poverty. This is a huge problem. Like 99% of the people I talk to, the reason that they're doing the things that they're doing is because they're poor. <laughs> And they'd be presented with it every single day, but because they don't, they don't have to think about why people are doing that. And in fact, are explicitly discouraged from doing so. And to think of them only as criminals who they stand against and they are the thin blue line that protects all the good people of society from the bad people. They never understand where the people that they are disciplining are coming from. And as a result, they they also they not only missee them, they not only missee the criminals, they missee themselves. They don't see that they are contributing to the problem. They don't see that when they arrest that person and they are fined for their crime and that it puts them even deeper into the hole and makes them even more likely to do it the next time. They don't see any of that because they don't think about how their actions fit into a larger context. In the same way with parenting, how if you don't pay attention to why, why your child's doing a thing, you may 
find that you're making a big mistake. And I've done this. I've made this mistake and felt bad about it. I have cut my kid off who keeps trying to say something because he was talking back and, like in a way that was you know, rude or unacceptable. And I was tired of having to hear him argue with me about why he shouldn't be, you know, intentionally antagonizing his brother. And I got tired of hearing his bad faith arguments. And I started cutting him off and saying, like, I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. And only to find out that when I actually listened to him, he had stopped trying to argue with me and was just trying to tell me that he was sorry. And I felt horrible because like I was treating him like a jerk and all the while I was doing that, he was trying to say he was sorry and that he understood why he was wrong. And, you know, that's a moment in which I fell into a more authoritarian type of thing. And I, and it caused me to make a, a mistake and to understand my son incorrectly in that moment. Because I assumed I already knew what he was thinking, what he was doing, what he was, you know, going for. And I was wrong. And boy, are police wrong about how society and crime works. Uh, poverty and crime are like one of the most well understood scientifically like proven linked things. Like it's not, it's not like a uh, open question. No one's like, hmm, I wonder like if poverty and crime affect each other like and it's not even like oh it's a correlation causation thing like it's it's causal we know it's causal because we've taken places that are poor and we've made them less poor and the crime goes down and when they get more poor the crime goes up and it happens every single time and it's not it's not a matter of debate it's a scientific fact that poverty is a causer of crime but you don't hear that in any police training videos you don't hear that coming out of the police unions that we need to if we that we need to reduce the workload on our police officers who have to deal with criminals because of all this poverty in our society boy wouldn't that be a interesting society to live in where the cops were some of the loudest advocates for needing to solve poverty and I mean, not to go, I don't want to go too much off, well, I, I want to be very fr frank that I'm not going off topic. This is a part of every topic. Um, but the issue that we're outlining here is that police are explicitly, um, their job is to protect capital and capitalism, not people. Um, and and the, the problem here is capitalism. Like this is a framework you know, all of these things that we talk about, well, if this framework exists and this is happening, what's the problem? Um, and it is that instillment and um, fundamental an understanding in our society that there is no alternative uh, to capitalism and that capitalism is the status quo, is the only status quo, the only status quo there could ever be. And therefore, all of these questions that arise where we say, well, is isn't poverty causing all of this crime? Well, look, we can't look at it from that way because capitalism requires there to be poverty. Um, so that can't be the problem. That's not the thing we can solve. We have to try solving it in another way, which is let's just arrest all of those people and put them all in prison, um, which yeah, fundamentally imagine, doesn't. <laughs> imagine if you turned that around again. Like uh, to me, like the 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 
the beauty of this frame of like parenting versus policing is that it makes some things in the whole policing debate so incredibly clear, which is that like, imagine if someone was like, well, I mean, listening to your children isn't an option. Children aren't people to be listened to. They don't have good thoughts. They're immature. They don't understand how the world works. You can't ask them what they want. They don't know. You give them what's good for them and they take it or they uh, suffer. You'd be like, wow, you're, that's horrible. <laughs> like, don't parent like that, please. And, and I want to specify, there are parents like that. I've met them. That Those yeah. people exist, but they are not a majority by any fucking means. <laughs> like, most of us are much more reasonable than that. Uh, even most people who disagree with us are much more reasonable than that. Most of them are doing that from a religious fundamentalist perspective, and they're not doing it because they've sat down and thought, like, what's a good way of do parenting? They did it because, mm -hmm. like, they exist in a giant culture that tells them that, like, God told us to to hit children, so we have to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't... Uh, making no commentary at all about, like, religion or religious belief or anything like that i think like it's i think we're pretty safe in saying that if your model for parenting is entirely like taken from a book that is thousands of years old it's probably not going to have the best ideas about how to to raise children yeah and i mean well you know the, the yeah yeah <laughs> that is it, there's a there's a whole rabbit hole i can fall down there you know the things that are the problem with Christian nationalism. But as, yeah. you know, like as we talked about last episode, those, the people who are, who are on that track are not the people who are uh, out reading about parenting on the internet or listening to leftist podcasts on the internet. So <laughs> they're not our listeners. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, if I, you I, are, I mean, honestly, congratulations for making it this far. I would have expected <laughs> you to rage quit this episode about two minutes in. So like if you're at whatever, the hell minute this is and still listening and still processing our arguments in any kind of good faith sense i mean honestly kudos yeah <laughs> and i mean and you know this is i think my reason my reasoning in pointing that up is it's one of those things and i'm i can't who i'm struggling to not get off topic here but you know when i was in college uh it was the middle of the obama years and i ran into a lot of kids from uh white suburbs where things were usually pretty good and um would talk about post-racist america like we're a post-racism america and i was like oh buddy you're fucking raw <laughs> like you know and i would you know just i i would intentionally go out of my way to describe horribly racist white supremacist things that i've encountered through rural spaces i've existed within um because i wanted to clarify no no these people exist out there they're a problem we need to think about them and fundamentally as a society thinking nah that's gone we don't have to worry about that is how we got trump into the white house how we got the rise of those people into positions or more positions of power is by underestimating them and thinking they were gone and they're not. And I do think it's important to like, you know, periodically remind people, hey, not everybody is as reasoned as we are right here. There are people who are bug fuck crazy and do the things that we talk about of like, well, nobody thinks this anymore. Oh, no, 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 no. There are people to do. And unfortunately, a lot of them are your local district attorney. Um, I'll say like, actually, that is 
Um, one thing about the evolution of the internet that has been fascinating to watch, which is that like very early on, I remember as a kid and teenager and stuff, there's this sense of like, it's the information age and information is going to be free and we're all going to be like, you know, with without anyone controlling our information, like the media, you know, we'll be able to, you know, really get to, you know, we'll, we'll know what it's like in other countries. We'll know what's going on around the world. We'll know all this <laughs> stuff and people will this. And then you just forget, oh, misinformation is a thing too. And uh, also um, it allows every, you know, like before there was the one guy in your town of, you know, a hundred thousand people that thought the earth was flat and everyone's like, oh yeah, well, Dave, you know, he has some wacky ideas about, you know, government cover-ups or whatever, but you know, it's Dave, you know, we all just kind of like roll our eyes and like, all right, Dave, you know, yeah, yeah. Okay. NASA's, NASA's trying to convince us of this or that. Okay, bud. And then all your, all your town Daves find each other on the internet and suddenly there's a, you know, 200,000 person community on the internet who is somehow arguing in the year of our lord 2022 that the earth is flat despite the fact that we've known that to be wrong for thousands of years <laughs> and then they create a pipeline of daves and then facebook realizes that that pipeline is profitable so it starts placing people onto the pipeline and I mean, and fundamentally, like, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about this in kind of a hypothetical sense, but I mean, like, where I grew up in rural Missouri in the Ozarks, now, and don't get me wrong, like, the Ozarks has a history of racism and severe problems, but most of it wasn't really along, like, national political lines, at least. Like, even when you look at, like, the history of the Ozarks in the Civil War, like, when you're looking at who was fighting who and like, oh, well, there almost every conflict that happened in the Ozarks, you find like Union and Confederates fighting Union and Confederates um, because it was way the fuck more complicated than that. Um, huh. But it, Missouri was a clusterfuck in the Civil War. Um, and that's not to say there wasn't some real like KKK uh well kkk presence and the i mean like fucking the, the the local like one of the local caves was at one point in the 1920s was Klu Klux claverns like want to be clear there was some political problems in the ozarks but the it wasn't as structured towards the like the big state problem right the the problem of a fascist christian ethno state it wasn't structured up in a way of that it was you know it, it, until very recently like when i was a kid nobody that around us had strong political views they cared about what was going on they didn't really give a shit about the the national scene because half of us didn't most of us didn't have national news we had three channels we had channel 10 channel 3 and channel 27 like we didn't know or care about national issues that wasn't where people's politics were split up around there wasn't this huge thing of cultural politics outside of church problems you know the you know being the pentecostal church and having its own things but you didn't have like these you know in 2001 after 9-11 with the rise of fox news and cable television and then the rise of the internet in this area and the growth of you know facebook groups of political groups and of the the far right streamlining and pipelining and all of this and then now all of a sudden 
you can't go into a room of people in the Ozarks hardly, uh, specifically of you know a certain type of white men, without finding every single one of them having an extremely strong opinion about national and international geopolitics from an incredibly misinformed point of view. Um, yeah. That misinformation dove into that community and turned them all into Trump voters, to turn them all into any form of national pol politic party voters that they fundamentally were not before, I would argue, 2001. Like that did change that area. And wow, we got kind of off topic here. But I mean, I yeah, do well, think I mean, I think ultimately what I was going going for and, you know, it falls in line with what you're saying, of course, which is that like the the weirdness of it all is that like simultaneously people are now more aware of how just truly present uh, a lot of ideas are that would have been perceived as like completely insane uh, or, you know, definitely, you know, dead or gone or old or dated or whatever. And, uh, uh, but it has also allowed these people to find each other, coalesce together, strate strategize, figure out how to present their message in a way that is palatable and acceptable to people. And they can rapidly, you know, fire off memes, fire off social media posts, and they can report back, oh, you know, when I put it to my friend this way, he was like, you know, I kind of see what you mean. You got a point. And like, let's try that. And then, you know, like they, you know, misinformation can be it can be well honed to become to exploit human cognition as much as good information can uh and in fact in many ways misinformation is better poised to do that than true information is um because um misinformation can appeal to biases that um uh truth by its nature wouldn't be able to do because you can't make up something to fit the narrative but yeah yeah no i agree i think we have uh pretty firmly wrapped up this particular subject i'm excited to dive further into um this in the future uh into policing and parenting in the future and just models of policing as we talked about and even the other models of parenting there's a lot of other models of child development and parenting that i think are worthy for us to dive into and really maybe get into some nitty-gritty of some parenting philosophies and discussions because uh yeah that all exists and that's a huge part of masculinity and fatherhood for uh, sure yeah and it's uh it'll be interesting i think there's a lot of potential you know different ways that people look at that kind of thing and philosophies of justice it'd be um it'll be a really interesting discussion um because you know i, I think i i've learned through our through our discussions just over the past two episodes personally uh you know how how good this this like sort of lens is at you know simultaneously looking through a single lens of just kind of like like you know we're comparing these two things and they, there seem to be so many parallels and i think like so, something that i'm sort of discovering even in the moment still is like this sense of like oh so like i can turn this lens on policing and i can turn it on parenting and i see so many of the same uh patterns what is this lens like what 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 is this thing that i'm looking through it 
through looking through it on and in my head it's like I think I'm sort of realizing it's this sense of like how to execute on uh, like as a parent, you're someone imbued with a lot of power over a child and you have a lot of responsibility to that child to raise them well and to help them become, you know, the best person they can be. But, it, you know, fundamentally there's a enormous power differential um, in information and in, actual physical strength and you know execution of force and in authority just like no one's gonna tell me basically anything about how what i can do to my child um and the ethical and justice execution of that power is um is you know what we call parenting right and uh that you know, but that lesson of like how to execute power and use power in a responsible and ethical way, uh, and how to enforce boundaries and enforce limits and stuff like that is uh, has a lot of I think implications on how to uh, that can be taken up to you know society and law enforcement and stuff like that as well. So it's it's been a really interesting uh, discussion, and I look forward to having more of it. I agree. And I mean, like, you know, I, I, I actually, something that just crossed my mind, we'll talk about this at a later time. I'm just dropping this as like a, a smoke bomb as I run away. But uh, something that just crossed my mind is the societal and the, the etymological difference between the term mommy state and a father state. Um, you know, you hear a lot of far right conservatives talk about like, uh, the United States becoming a mommy state, uh, being mothering over you, over nurturing you, giving you too many things, uh, making you complacent by giving you too much. And, you know, people, it's just, you know, their view of socialism and then their view of a father state, which was to be blunt, the Nazis perspective of what a state should be is a strong disciplinarian father, the fatherland, that whole nazi authoritarian authoritarian uh structure there's a lot to be like i don't know there's a lot to unpack and just the etymology of those things and what that means within our society and how we view gender roles how we view uh uh patriarch the patriarchal constructs of our society um there's a lot to unpack there and a lot to unpack about states and what that means about systems of power and yeah and, and sure. I, as a some brand of anarchist, I love to talk about systems of power, and that's why I think that all of this should be diluted throughout a community. And but, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. Uh, uh, and there's so many different models of the way that can work, and uh, it can, it'll be interesting to see like what, you know, kind of insights can be gained through comparing these things that you know at first blush seem barely related but are you know end up having a lot in common and a lot to learn i think from each circle um we learned a lot about you know certain forms of parenting through looking at policing and looking back on parenting and i think we've learned some about uh policing by looking at good parenting and applying it sort of backwards and seeing you know what kinds of things do and don't work but uh getting I, i'm 
I think it'll be good to get in the in the weeds a little bit and and start saying like specifically like what are some maybe like get it maybe do like aspects of uh alternative policing models and uh um god this uh, means i need to start doing research uh, authoritative i keep almost using the wrong word i'm so used to, <laughs> to saying the word authoritarian talking about modern day stuff <laughs> that <laughs> i uh anyway uh authoritative parenting and alternative policing models and doing some direct comparisons there should be interesting yeah no i agree yeah this means i have to actually start doing my work as a podcaster and <laughs> <laughs> damn it philip you're making me work um, but yeah uh so i think that kind of wraps up our episode today um join us for more discussions like this go back listen to some of our other episodes if you haven't um check out uh rdc's patreon link what is it frederick collect or whoa hold on patreon.com slash red dirt collective all one word um yeah please help us we're uh looking into doing some exciting things here uh nothing i can announce yet but uh definitely a lot of interesting things coming down the pipe for the norman area of oklahoma uh and the surrounding metro area so uh I'm, i for one am really excited to see y'all build that hydroelectric dam <laughs> <laughs> yes we're a power company now uh <laughs> we've given up on the leftism and the mutual aid and we're just <laughs> doing hydroelectric power in oklahoma <laughs> in the middle of the worst <laughs> drought ever <laughs> yeah it's it's gonna be great we're gonna all be super rich well thank you all for joining us this morning afternoon evening or whatever time of day it is thank you <laughs>